0: Hi, I'm Linda Calabresi. I'm a GP and the medical editor of Health Ed. Welcome to our unique podcast series, now available direct to your device. The series features some of Australia's leading clinical experts talking on topics that are both practical and important to Australian GPs. Hi, everybody. I'm going to be talking about clinical practice questions in the context of considering triple therapy for people with asthma. Uh, These questions are practical and I hope they help you in your day-to-day management of people with asthma. They've arisen out of another talk I gave about triple therapy and I think specifically were questions that people in primary care have asked about how best to consider triple therapy in what particular patient and how to manage the up and down titration of doses. These are my disclosures. So the first question is what kind of asthma patients are suitable for triple therapy. And it's really important to recognise that the majority of patients with asthma do not require consideration for triple therapy. And so most patients will be very well controlled on inhaled steroids, plus or minus a long acting beta agonist, as long as a number of other factors are in place, they're using it, they're actually taking their medications and using their device correctly, and there's nothing else interfering, background issues for them, personal issues, and comorbidities that might in fact cause their symptoms to be more troublesome. This is a community-based practice in Dutch primary care, and what you see here is that 24% of the patients were at genus step 4-5. And that's a step that we would call the group of people who might be considered for triple therapy. But amongst this group of people, the majority of them have difficult to treat asthma. And often there are other factors and stepping up their pharmacotherapy is not necessarily the correct response. It may only partially be helpful if those other factors have not been addressed. And I'll go into those. And then a much smaller proportion of the whole that is around 4% in this sample, and probably in Australia, 5 to 10% of patients at the most have severe asthma, such that when you optimize their pharmacotherapy, you know their adherence is good, and their device use is good. They still have very troublesome symptoms. So what to do about this group of people, and most importantly, before you step up, these are the general principles. And I realize I might sort of labor these points too often, but they really are crucial because the majority of people with asthma can actually be very well controlled on an inhaled steroid and long-acting beta agonist, and they don't need to be considered for additional therapies. But if you have a patient who's persistently symptomatic, the sort of things that you need to be thinking about is, are these additional symptoms actually due to asthma? Is there a comorbidity? Are there upper respiratory tract symptoms such as uh, cough hypersensitivity? dysfunctional breathing or vocal cord dysfunction, which is contributing to their their asthma presentation and check their inhaler technique and their device use and their adherence. They may not always tell you that they're not adherent and you've got to explore that in different ways, but be confident before you start stepping up therapy that the person is actually taking the medication that you, you believe they have been taking. It's really important to recognise that in asthma management, particularly at this end of the spectrum, it's not a case of one size fits all, and it's not just about the medications. So uh, I would really encourage you to go back to first principles when you're considering adding in more therapy for a person who you might have thought should be well controlled on an inhaled steroid and a larva alone. So before you decide to step up, manage asthma in this continuous cycle of assessing the patient, adjusting their treatment and reviewing their response. And it's really crucial to consider uh, what they are doing in terms of their inhaler technique. And you may well have shown them quite correctly, and they may well have taken quite correctly their, uh, their medications for quite some period of time, and yet they lose their skills with their device, they become careless with their device, they may have changed devices. This is a very common problem in asthma management currently. There are so many drugs and so many different devices now. And just because a patient is adept at using one device, a dry powder inhaler or a PMDI, doesn't mean they're going to instantly switch and take the other one correctly if they've been prescribed a different uh, device. Assess their adherence. It's really important to use open-ended questions, non-judgmental questions, and really put yourself in their shoes and say look if i had a disease that you know only troubled me a little bit of the time i'd find it really difficult to to take my medication every day you know how do you feel about that now that's a question you would have versions of that you would ask all the time but it's so it's so important to to sort of identify with a patient in the challenge of being uh, totally adherent with a medication regimen and review their triggers and and particularly allergen exposure, smoking, comorbidities and psychosocial stresses and make sure they have an action plan. This is really crucial and they know what to do when their symptoms get worse. They know how to step up and they can resort to that such that when they do become worse they become much more conscientious and careful about managing their medication. So what does the Australian Asthma Handbook tell us about this And, and does it actually tell us for whom um, triple therapy might be suited? Well, perhaps not as explicitly as you might like, but what's important is to recognize that, that in this uh, hierarchy of uh, steps that patients can take from an inhaled steroid monotherapy up to ics LABA, where we're getting to in relation to triple therapy is a few patients. And this is really what's important. I would really just encourage you not to think that just because you've got a triple um, at your disposal that every person with bothersome asthma symptoms should be put on it. It's not appropriate. It's not necessarily going to add value. It's not a, a cheap medication. It may not cost the patient any more, but it costs the country more. We've got to think about these things. And, and in the case of most patients with asthma, it isn't needed. But for those in whom it is needed, there are very specific um uh, indications and there's very particular value in it. So in this few, uh, this group of few patients, uh, regular inhaled steroids, medium to high dose, will already be being used and um, what would be most appropriate um, for many patients will be to take a maintenance and reliever, um, dose of inhaled steroids and a rapid onset LARBA such as formoterol. some patients will be on a moderate to high dose of an ICS LARBA fixed dose and SARBA as needed. Um, but uh, it's at this point when patients are persistently symptomatic despite those approaches that we need to think about what to do next. The same, this is the global guideline, and the global guideline suggests exactly the same. And what it again suggests at these steps is that adding in a LAMA may be a very important consideration, a very useful thing to do, and I'm going to show you some evidence for that. But really important is also that it it mentions the fact that um, patients who have this degree of symptomatology should be considered in a slightly different way before you just step up more treatment. So before stepping up, again, I reiterate, go to the issues that are going to affect the patient, potentially causing them to be more troublesome and symptomatic in terms of either exacerbations or persisting airflow limitation, limiting their daily activities, or meaning that they're taking a larger amount of short-acting reliever, which is not necessarily going to help their asthma and in fact may be harmful. So let's go to the issue of how you assess asthma control. And a patient's level of asthma control represents the extent to which the clinical manifestations of their asthma have been removed or reduced by their treatment. So you know ideally you are controlling the underlying disease process at the same time as you are controlling the symptoms and minimizing the exacerbations. And so good control represents combinations of those two things. Daytime symptoms, twice or fewer times per week. Need for reliever, twice or fewer days per week. Now even if patients need it on several occasions in one day, they're already getting up to a level that you should be asking, what can I be doing for this person that can minimize that use? Because that is an excessive use of ASABA. And patients use SABAS for many different reasons, not always their asthma. Sometimes apprehension, fear, anticipation of a bad event. Sometimes for the symptoms they believe are their asthma that actually due to upper airway irritability and, and uh, potentially symptoms that can be addressed in different ways. So um, I would really encourage you to think of SABA use twice a week or more as something that needs to be addressed. Uh, Good control means no limitation of activities, no symptoms at night or on waking, and no exacerbations of asthma. Poor control, the other end of the spectrum. Although poor control may be due to underlying severe disease or resistance to therapy, and as I've said to you, this is only a very small proportion of patients with asthma, it's far, far more frequently due to poor compliance, poor inhaler technique, under-prescribing or environmental factors such as allergen exposure or smoking. Patients may appear to have poor control due to incorrect diagnosis. Maybe they don't have asthma after all. Often patients have never had spirometry, so they don't even have anything other than a previous history of similar symptoms which have been labelled as asthma. It's really important to go back to basics and ask, does this person really have asthma? Are these symptoms really due to asthma? And spirometry is a requirement for the diagnosis of asthma. Uh, Even so they may have asthma but super added symptoms that are attributed to asthma that are not due to it. So I just want to go very briefly to this issue of what the difference is between asthma control and asthma severity. So imagine asthma severity down here on the left hand side from mild, moderate through to severe and control as optimal, good or poor. And I just remind you that you can have poor asthma control and mild asthma. If you don't take your medication uh, or if you have a background trigger, if you're a continuing smoker, if psychosocial factors are really important in your life, you can have a lot of asthma symptoms but only have mild disease. In other words, you only need a little bit of inhaled steroid to get you into a good control situation. On the other hand, you can have the reverse. You can have somebody who has severe disease, who needs a lot of medication to minimise their symptoms and their exacerbation rate. But if their disease is severe and they are taking their medication, they can have optimal control. So it's really important to realise these are two different sides of the one coin, but they both matter. They both make up the the total presentation. How can you assess control? Well, it's very simple to do. There are lots of standardised measurements for it that we use in clinical trials, but for a consultation, Just simply ask, in the last two to four weeks, how often have you taken your reliever medication? On average, during the week, how often do you take your puffer? Um, Experienced asthma symptoms, been woken at night by asthma, had any unplanned time off school, work or had an unscheduled GP visit and measure lung function to see that it is optimal. And then you'll have a good idea about whether or not uh, the asthma is likely to be due causing the symptoms, whether it's well controlled or not, and whether this person needs more medication. And this is what the Asthma Management Handbook says about what you should be doing um, to try to assess this. And it's very very similar to what I have just explained, but I encourage you to go to the digital uh, website, the platform for the asthma, uh, Australian Asthma Handbook, and to look at this. And what you'll see is that good control is daytime symptoms, Uh, Less than twice a week, need for Saba less than two days a week, no limitation, no symptoms during the night or waking and and so it goes to the more severe end of the spectrum. Uh, So what's important to recognise here, it's all of these features, it's not just one of them. It's, you know, it's not just minimal need for reliever medication. Some patients don't like taking their reliever, they won't take it even when they're unwell very often or as often as needed. So it's important to recognise aiming for good control means aiming for all of these features. However, in clinical practice things are very different and uh, this is uh, uh, really a, uh, a big um, questionnaire based survey of people with asthma who were part of a Uh, a software platform, a a health uh, platform where they could um, interact and and, uh, complete um, questions about their health. And um, what you see here is that there's sort of four rough groups of people with asthma that you you can break this down into. A is well controlled with no preventer or with poor adherence. And these people believe their asthma is well controlled. That's how they've described it. Um, you need to know for yourself whether that's the case and you need to follow them up because they may not need a preventer, but they may or they may not be taking it and have what they believe is good control, but what patients believe is good control is not necessarily what we know to be. So we still need to keep an eye on these people. B is a group of well-controlled patient, patients with uh, good self-reported adherence. In these people you could potentially reduce their medication. They may not need as much as they have been prescribed if they are truly taking it. Group C is people with uncontrolled symptoms despite good self-reported adherence. Now these people may indeed have troublesome asthma and indeed need more treatment and these are people you might consider adding in a triple uh, or, or a, a long-acting anti And D is people who are under-treated. They have uncontrolled symptoms and they acknowledge they are poorly adherent or they're not taking a preventer medication. And clearly, you can start back at a lower dose ics LABA and, and ramp them up rather than necessarily add in the full Monty, the, the, the triple at, at the start because they haven't been taking treatment and they acknowledge they haven't so these are the groups of poorly controlled patients these are people with good adherence and they can be people with poor adherence and you treat them very differently Um, the people who have uncontrolled symptoms with no preventer or poor adherence that's not hard as i said start preventer and address their adherence issues what are their concerns really really explore that again open-ended questions help are best of all in this context the harder group is this group 20 percent of patients Say they have poorly controlled symptoms and describe their symptoms as such um, but they believe they are adherent with their medication. Now there's lots to explore here but it's really important to understand these two dimensions. When their symptoms are uncontrolled be sure they're due to asthma. Um, But also explore what they believe is good adherence and are they adherent taking their medication daily but not using their device correctly. Remember that control takes weeks to months to achieve. In some people, uh, it's simply a matter of eliminating symptoms and that will happen in the first couple of weeks. But over four, six, eight, ten, twelve 10, 12 weeks to months, then you start to see benefits in terms of consistently good morning peak flows with minimal diurnal variability. No SABA use and ultimately improvement in airway hyperresponsiveness takes longer, but when patients are on inhaled steroids, even low dose inhaled steroids over a period of many, many months to years, their, their airway hyperresponsiveness improves significantly. So um, I've I've mentioned this and I just say it again, most patients do well on an ICS or an ICS larva. Uh, Why should we do this complicated assessment for what might seem a simple disease? Well, I I keep on reiterating this. A lot of symptoms that patients attribute to asthma are not asthma. They are due to uh, upper airway sensitivity, cough hypersensitivity, uh, dysfunctional breathing, and often even uh, intermittent laryngeal obstruction, which is due to a completely different phenomenon to asthma. It's all happening in the vocal cords or the supralaryngeal area, and it's it's not asthma. And um, it's really important to recognize because it's dealt with differently. Uh, Speech pathologists are very good at helping patients with exercises to um, improve their vocal cord dysfunction and to help them to um, manage those symptoms. And over treating those people with inhaled steroids is is harmful. It's going to cause them to have more uh, dysphonia and and more trouble with their upper airway and and indeed isn't going to address their underlying problem. Um, So uh, this is the point I'm making here. Asthma symptoms can be mimicked by upper respiratory tract problems, which require very specific therapy and certainly not ramping up the asthma therapy. So um, long-term triple, just to go to the point about why llamas work, they work differently to labas and so they're a useful add-on bronchodilator and they also have effects on quality of life. Um, uh, They actually, typically, they work at the cholinergic junction, but it's important for us to appreciate that airway smooth muscle tone is modulated mostly by cholinergic stimuli, whereas uh, contraction and relaxation is modulated both by cholinergic tone but to a greater extent by the beta receptor. So these two uh, mechanisms are are acting together and you can address both of them when you add in a LAMA to an existing therapy with a LARBA in it. Interestingly, acetylcholine is also produced by the airway epithelium and by non-neuronal cells, such as some inflammatory cells. So cholinergic signaling is happening in multiple different locations in the airway and not just uh, through um, uh, bronchomotor tone. So teotropium reduces exacerbations when added into ICS larva in patients who are poorly controlled. Um, this is also uh, lung function and shows, compared to placebo, substantial benefits for teotropium at two different doses, and in fact, slightly superior to salmeterol in this study. Uh, Trough FEV1, this is uh, 20, 23 hours FEV1 after a dose of uh, teotropium. O- on this case, actually, uh, sorry, uh, mometasone Indicaterol and mometasone Indicaterol Glycopyronium and again, what you see is the best lung function is seen in the, the triple and the medium ICS in both of these compared to uh, fluticasone salmeterol and uh, mometasone indicatorol. So that is the LAMA is adding in value in terms of the uh, FEV1. But what you do see here too across the horizontal axis is that this lasts. It's not an effect that wanes over time so uh, coming back to the asthma handbook and where we're considering adding this in um, when should you consider uh, doing it well if you achieve good control when you do do it uh, in that group of people who are persistently symptomatic on ics LABA, and i've just shown you a, um, a couple of slides that tell you that the fev1 is likely to improve and with that Uh, their activities of daily living may improve. And and if that is your goal, then that's where you also ought to focus uh, whether you consider the patient achieves a good outcome and then if they do, whether you're going to step down. And if you get good control on a triple therapy, what should you do? Should you just leave the patient on triple for the long term? Well, certainly you should leave them on for a good 6 to 12 weeks of good control, no exacerbations, minimal Saba use, daily activities as good as they could possibly be. And as I showed you, a lot of these improvements take time, so you might decide to to, uh, wait longer. Um, Your options are, if you decide to step down, to step down the LLAMA. Now, if you added in the LLAMA, and I'm going to show you some data that suggests that, well, the teotropium data I showed you shows it does reduce exacerbation rates. If the step up was to improve exacerbation rates, then you, and exacerbation rates have disappeared, you could argue both ways. It's worked. I want to keep it that way. Keep it that way by all means. Um, If you want to step it down though, Um, I would suggest that you do it cautiously, remembering that sometimes patients remain exacerbation-free through a relatively low exacerbation period, such as the summer months, but they won't necessarily be so for the winter months. Um, Step down the ICS. If you did the step-up, the add-in of the LLAMA, um to improve lung function if you achieve that better lung function leave them on the ad in llama but if there's a dose of ics in that triple that you are a little uncomfortable with it's a bit too high and you'd like to pull it down a bit i would say never cease the ics we don't have evidence for doing that in this group of patients but bring it down and bring it down to a level that might cause fewer upper respiratory tract symptoms for instance dysphonia um, and or that you may be concerned about long-term safety of the ICS. That's a nice thing about the LAMA add-in, you may be able to reduce the ICS over time. And measure the outcome, whatever you are aiming for, measure it. Make sure you know, did I achieve what we were trying to achieve? And is the patient doing better as a result? Well, what about exacerbations? Well, this is a complicated study, a double-blind randomised controlled trial, the CAPTAIN study. And it's actually a study of various combinations. And what they, um, they did was randomize patients to once-daily Ellipta. And this is with fluticasone volanterol, 125 or 225 once-daily, or fluticasone eumeclidinium valanterol, 131.25, so the lower dose, and valanterol, or 162, the higher dose of the LAMA or the higher dose of the ICS with the lower dose uh, eumeclidinium or the higher dose Umeclidinium. So a little bit complicated, but I'm going to try to draw out some learnings from this. And what you just see here is that there is the greatest benefit, sorry, the greatest benefit um, for the, in terms of in, in this case, this is uh, exacerbations and the exacerbation rate uh, is is lowest in the patients on the triple therapy. Um, And so um, these rate ratios are important, um, but um, in this case was not statistically significant. So again, suggesting the LAMA may not be doing all the the work you want in terms of exacerbation reduction. And now you see some differences here for uh, the different combinations of doses. And uh, this is the, um, the, let's focus on the middle here. And this is the triple 100 of the inhaled steroid versus the uh, fluticasone volanterol alone. And this is the percent of patients who achieve control in asthma. So you see a greater percent on the triple than on the uh, ICS labra alone. And you see that happening also in the, the higher dose Um, a greater percent of patients even greater percent of patients achieving good asthma control based on the acq7 this is the asthma control questionnaire including the lung function so again you're getting the best value out of the combination with the 200 microgram of inhaled steroids Um, importantly though and i think i have a slide to show you this next And that is that the higher dose of inhaled steroid achieves the best outcome in terms of exacerbation reduction. So the LAMA is adding value in terms of asthma control and in terms of lung function. But the particular value add for exacerbation reduction happens with a higher dose of ICS. And you see that in this this, um, uh, figure. And what you see here is if you just compare these two Adding in the LAMA does not achieve as marked a reduction in uh, exacerbation rate. We're here with exacerbation rates, as does adding more ICS going from 100 to 200 a day. So the dose of ICS has the biggest effect on the exacerbation reduction. This is statistically significant, clinically meaningful, and this is what ICS do. They reduce exacerbations as well as achieve good control. Uh, Importantly though, you also uh, might um, observe that the dose of um, ICS that that is given, and if you just focus down here, um, and this is uh, the uh, fluticasone volanterol versus the the triple, um, the, the best outcome for the ICS in terms of exacerbation reduction um, is actually seen with uh, in the the higher doses of uh, sorry the higher levels of eosinophils. And you see that particularly here, this is the uh, the red line is the therapies that are containing no ICS, and the green line are the therapies that contain ICS. And what you see very definitely is that across the spectrum of levels of eosinophils, the greatest benefit is seen for the ICS-containing regimen at the higher dose, the 200. So uh, really important um, that, that, that the 200 compared to the 100 is actually having this very marked benefit in terms of exacerbation reduction, the higher the eosinophil count. Side effects from these medications are very few. I don't expect you to look at this table in detail, but I will just reassure you that uh, there was no significant difference um, in the adverse event rates, particularly for pneumonia and lower respiratory tract infections on these two doses of inhaled corticosteroids. Just reminding you that in the end, we have to make our decisions not... um, on our own we must make them with the patient and the patient themselves indeed needs most of all to own the decision and to feel part of the decision-making process and so shared decision-making in this study actually had marked benefit in terms of adherence and outcomes and it just goes to the issue that this is not just a tokenistic gesture if you truly truly identify the patient's goals and preferences if you summarize them back to them okay so i understand that really you'd rather take something just once a day set and forget that's what you want to do so let's think about the treatment that will serve your purposes best and then discuss the merits of the different therapies and negotiate the decision and that will achieve the good asthma control uh, much more likely So I've tried to put all of this into a sort of flow diagram and um, I hope you can sort of follow this, but basically you're presented with a patient with persistent symptoms, check their device use and assess their adherence first before you do anything. Then assess the triggers, the background issues, what else is going on that might be causing the symptoms to be worse that I can address without changing treatment at all. Are comorbidities playing a role? Is asthma the reason for the persistent symptoms? If exacerbation reduction and achieving better control is your goal, then add an ICS. If improving lung function and better control is your goal, then add in a LAMA. If the patient is no better at three months after you've added in the LAMA, consider increasing the ICS dose. If the patient is no better on this side from from, um, exacerbation reduction or their asthma control, and you're not happy then phenotype them and review them and it's really important this phenotyping can take place even before you make that decision about treatment phenotyping is very simple in this context you're just trying to find out does this patient have a t2 high disease an eosinophil driven type of disease and if they do you will see that in their full blood count and they have an elevated eosinophil count, particularly over 200, then that's when you may consider they could be suitable for a biologic therapy, in which case you need to refer them to an immunologist or a uh, respiratory physician who may be able to prescribe um, uh, their their, um, uh, biologic therapy. But uh, some patients will not want an injection. It's intrusive, and uh, it certainly um, requires... Good adherence as well, very good adherence to injections, even if self-managed. And so really crucial is that if patients choose to go to a a, a -a once-a-day inhaler, you review them at three months and you make sure that they have had a good response to that. Whether it is to reduce their exacerbations or improve their lung function, it's crucial that you review and then decide what next. I've mentioned shared decision-making and why it matters, and in that particular study that I mentioned, it reduced SABA use, it improved FEV1, and it doubled the likelihood of having well-controlled asthma. So, you know, that flow diagram must be fitted into what works for the patient, what they want, and um, weighing up the pros and cons of those additional therapies. And just to go to the issue of of, of spirometry and when, when to do it, It's essential for diagnosis, but you may consider doing it longer term, every one to two years to to ensure the patient is stable, that their lung function is not deteriorating, to give you a feel for whether they really are taking their therapy and and particularly where you're uncertain about the diagnosis. Um, Lung function testing in the time of COVID, uh, all patients should have lung function testing with a bacterial viral filter but you can do it. You can do it in primary care very, very easily. I know that it has been really, really, really low uh, through the pandemic and for very good reasons, but it's really important to reinstitute spirometry. If you used to do it in your practice or you have someone to refer to, please do, because making an asthma diagnosis without spirometry is really doing the wrong thing by the patient. Inhaled meds can be maintained. There's still some question about whether inhaled steroids might actually reduce the severity of COVID. They certainly don't worsen it. And there's some evidence from small trials that they may indeed be important and and beneficial. Uh, Oral steroids are not contraindicated. Avoid the use of nebulizers. Make sure your patients have an action plan. So if they are isolating or if there is further quarantining for any reason, Um, they have medications they can use or they know what to do. Um, So uh, just uh, further recommendations about spirometry and and remember, don't do it um, if patients are symptomatic with upper respiratory tract symptoms or anything suggestive of a very, very recent contact uh, contact and, uh, and symptoms of COVID. And remember the comorbidities. And, and, uh, you know, it's not just uh, one disease, as we know in most patients, it's the interaction with everything else that's going on in their lives. My final recommendations are step up only when patients are suboptimally controlled and you know adherence with ICS-LABA is good. You've assessed the patient's asthma control and the symptoms are due to asthma. Their device use has been checked and you've addressed their triggers. So there's a lot to do before you step up. It, it ought not to be just something you immediately do the moment the patient isn't well controlled on ICS LABA. Add in a LAMA when you're seeking to improve lung function, asthma control and quality of life because the evidence shows us that LAMA's are good at doing that when added to an ICS LABA. You can Add in a llama also, if you're concerned about stepping up the inhaled steroid dose for any reason. But step up the inhaled steroid dose, if exacerbations are your main target, if they are occurring frequently and you're concerned about them and you want to get better control of those exacerbations, inhaled steroids will do that for you best of all. And the patient's already taking inhaled steroids, you've checked their adherence with them, is good then stepping up the dose is likely to add value. Particularly going to add value if the eosinophils or the exhaled nitric oxide uh, are raised, and that suggests T2 high disease, and that is a context in which inhaled steroids are particularly effective. If patients don't do well when you step up the inhaled steroids, then you do need to think about, is this patient really as adherent as I thought? Are the triggers addressed as I thought? Is the background issue not using their device well? Whatever it is, they need to be referred and assessed and considered for biologic therapy as well. So thank you very much. I hope this has been helpful. Thank you for joining us. We hope you are enjoying this series and will recommend it to your friends and colleagues. I'm Linda Calabresi, and on behalf of the team here at HealthEd, I look forward to joining you soon for our next podcast. If you enjoyed this audio segment, you can find out more about our free webcast lectures, which can be accessed from any device on our website at healthed.com.au. The podcasts published on this page are for medical professionals only. The content is not a substitute for medical advice. If you have a health issue, you should seek the advice of a suitable qualified health professional.